Hi, I'm Naira Antoun, Director of the Transnational Trends and Citizenship Project, and you're listening to Order from Ashes, the podcast from Century International. This podcast comes out of the Transnational Trends and Citizenship Project, where we brought together topic experts from across different regions to see what we could learn across regions. Today, I'll be speaking with Thanasi Kambanis about the project as a whole. Um, hi, Thanasi. Hi, Naira. Great to be on the podcast with you to talk about yeah. our project. Thanks for joining. All right. So um, how about we start with um, a very sort of big picture idea of what this project was? Sure. And we started working on this about two years ago, uh, right around the time that the pandemic was was uh was breaking over over the world and we were uh we were really thinking about a series of interlocked global crises uh that that we saw uh as being really deeply related and which uh at least our feeling at the time was it was a new idea especially in the west for people to understand their crises as being part of something international. And I'm very specifically thinking of things like the democracy deficit, the erosion of democracy, the intrusion of armed groups into political life, uh, the sense that old battles about uh, uh, equal rights or gender equality uh, or, or social justice had been won, and then suddenly uh, these these things were being questioned again. Uh, old fights about race and and, and police violence uh, and accountability, uh, and 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 lots more, and and also the sense that protest, uh, which at least in the West. Uh, was thought of as as an old tool that maybe had had outlived its usefulness or had peaked in the 60s or early 70s. Uh, and then we had seen protest become the major currency of politics around the world, first in, in the Arab world, but then also in Hong Kong. And that was suddenly coming uh, uh, up in the United States and Europe as a major force. And our uh, our starting question was, uh, how can we understand these crises as uh, being interconnected, either part of, of single global phenomena or as uh, somehow uh, things that were affecting each other, learning from each other uh, and driving each other around the world? So, I mean, part part of um, the thinking around what this crisis or set of crises looked like was also um, I guess over the last uh, decade has been around like rising authoritarianism across different parts of the globe. And it's been hard not to think about that in some ways as a global phenomenon, right? Like in Europe, there are concerns about rising authoritarianism in uh, Latin America. So, I mean, there there has been beginnings of some global thinking around that, right? Ab- absolutely. And and there have, by the way, we're, we're not, uh, we're not claiming to have sort of invented this approach, right? There have always been people, Mm-mm-mm. activists, thinkers, uh, political players and others who, who who have always had this mindset, but writ large, um, you know, both of us, me and you, Naira, have been rooted for for much of our adult lives in events happening in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, and for for me especially, it was interesting to see as a uh, you know I'm a person who grew up in the United States, uh, spent most of my adult life in the Arab world, uh, and covering. Uh, among other things, the outcome of America's destructive war on terror wars, the invasion of Iraq, you know, super militarized counterterrorism policy and so on, uh, and the war in Syria. I mean, the, you know, the, the list is, is long. Uh, but what was interesting was to see suddenly in the United States around, uh, you know, the, the, the Trump era, 
uh, you know, from 2017 onward, Americans suddenly seeing what people in the Arab world and the Middle East had experienced and realizing, oh my, uh, uh, we're, we're experiencing some of these things too. Uh, maybe we're not exceptional and completely immune to the forces that are playing out in other places. Maybe those events, the, the, you know, those wars and and, and uh, uh, rights stripping and, and and oppression that are going on in the Arab world aren't some kind of unique Arab pathology, uh, but you know, are some kind of contingent political phenomenon. And now we're experiencing it too. Uh, and we wanted, uh, among other things, to say, okay, there's this there's this habit of trying to have Westerners go and teach. Middle Easterners, uh, how to deal with things. Uh, what if we just flip that adversely uh, on its head and say, uh, hey, uh, Western Europe and North America, you have a lot to learn from the Middle East and North Africa. How about we bring people together who deal with related uh, phenomena with the initial framing being what can the West learn from the East instead of the other way around? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I didn't mean to suggest either that we had invented a new paradigm, nor that necessarily the, the thinking around, let's take the same example of rising authoritarianism, was necessarily happening in a very analytical way. I mean, sometimes those um, comparisons to the Middle East would happen in quite a facile way, right? You know, like, oh, this this type of leader is, you know, familiar to us from Saudi Arabia, just as, you know, uh, when there was suppression of, of protests in the US and Europe, you had these sort of comments of like, oh, this looks more like Baghdad. So we're, we expect, so the, so the type of uh, comparison, so we basically, we hope to, to look quite deeply and move beyond that kind of, um, yeah, sort of surface yeah, that, level. I mean, that, that's exactly right. There's, because there I think, and we'll talk more about this in this podcast, there are helpful and unhelpful ways of, of setting up uh, uh, comparisons and looking at things in an international context. And, you know, this is this is something we had a lot of, uh, of, of experience and struggle with in an earlier iteration of the citizenship work where we were, you know, we were asking questions about rights, uh, citizenship, quality of citizenship, rights for minorities, rights for different groups of people. And uh, we found we had to be really careful. Uh, if we talked about universal rights in a certain way, it actually uh, erased the specifics and particularities of communities, what, you know, LGBTQ people in Egypt or Christians in, in, uh, uh, in Iraq or secular people in Lebanon, or, you know, you name it, powerful groups, marginalized groups. It turns out if you talk in, in, in very simple terms or, or, or absolute terms about universalism, it removes complexity and, and truth that's necessary to understand what's happening. Um, and at the same time, if you relinquish any, uh, any, any effort, to, to find the universal or find the commonalities, uh, you also miss a, a ton, uh, a ton of dynamics and a ton of important forces. And that's, that's the, uh, the sort of sweet spot that we tried to aim this project at. Um, and, and I think one of the most fascinating things is how, how hard it is. You know, if you do, if you do decide, okay, this is what we want to do. We want to find out, um, what we can learn by, by juxtaposing, let's say, uh, experts in protest, uh, in, in the Middle East with experts in protest in, in, in the U.S. Um, and at the same time, so you sort of force them to work in concert on thinking about their different problems um, without uh, uh, suggesting that you're trying to, to, to set up an equivalency or, or making any assumptions at all really about, you know, you're, you're just asking the question, are there interrelations? Are there comparisons to be made? Um, 
And you know, I'd, I'd be I'd be remiss in not uh, uh, saying one thing about the genesis of of the way we talked about this project, and it's a, it's a sort of a little a, a bit of a joke that's been overtaken by the depth and seriousness of our inquiry. But Carl Sharo, the the brilliant but also hilarious uh, uh, analyst and satirist, um, uh, had a tweet some years ago where he said, you know, we're all we're always hearing people talk about Mina. Uh, Middle East and North Africa. Um, let's let's start talking about Wiena, uh, Western Europe and North America. And it was, I think, meant to be a silly poke at uh, at how reductionist and absurd it is to take this huge world region that goes from Morocco to you know Iran or arguably Afghanistan and you know north south from Turkey to Saudi Arabia and includes places like Somalia and Sudan and some people's mindsets and to just call that Mina you know like what could this huge swath of the globe possibly have in common um at no more than you know the Wiena does from you know the Ukraine to California um and uh and I thought I thought that was um Funny, but also useful because there there are some there are some commonalities and um and since we do think sometimes in these kinds of broad terms, let's do it in all directions and not just when we're talking about the Arab world or the Middle East. Yeah, no, I think this this project both sort of brings um, a couple of regions um, alongside each other to look at one another, broadly defined regions, uh, the Middle East uh, and. Uh, the US and uh, Europe. Uh, at the same time, as with Carl Scharrer's comment, it sort of pokes at what do we mean by by region in, in the first place, right? Um, before we go um, any further, I think, into like, um, you know, some of the learnings of the, of the project and its conceptual framework, perhaps we should just go through what we say we brought people together, but around what did we bring them together? So you've mentioned protest. That was one of the groups, but perhaps you could just tell us um, a bit about the different groups. Sure. So, so we, we, we thought about all these different elements of the global crisis and we ended up uh, uh, focusing on four that we thought were the most ripe for testing this method around. So first was militias or armed groups. Uh, which are, are particularly salient, especially after January 6th in the United States and have been for quite some time uh, in the Middle East. The second uh, was gender and, and sexuality, uh, which, uh, again, have been very, very prominent uh, uh, elements of the contestation of power, first during the, the Arab uprisings of 2010 and 11, um, and uh, in the U.S. through the culture wars that have really dominated uh, political life here, I would say, for 30 years. Um, the third was uh, police accountability. Um, you know, it was very striking at the time that we were designing this project that uh, the BLM protests were one of the most, the Black Lives Matters protests were one of the most salient uh, 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 forces in American politics. Um, there were uh, protests about police violence and accountability in Europe throughout this time. Um, and in, in the Arab world, uh, in particular, this had been a central uh, driving force of the uprisings, and it was police brutality in Tunisia and Egypt specifically and directly that that provoked two revolutions that that for a time overthrew uh, entire despotic governments um uh, and and the final one was protest and and to us that was the most uh uh sort of obvious uh uh framework within which to think about transnational or transregional comparisons because there were so many obvious uh, uh instances of 
emulation, learning, communication between protest movements in different spaces. And protest had uh, become such a, a central uh, uh, tool of politics and contestation of, of politics at this time. The other, the other, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm going on a little too long, but the other thing that we, that we, uh, uh, you and I, uh, worked really mindfully on in this project was to bring together different types of thinkers, right? So traditionally in working groups like this, at least, you know, at a think tank, it tends to be think tank people. So they might be ex-government officials or they might be ex-activists uh, or ex-academics, but they are in the moment when they're doing these kinds of projects, they are think tank people who are, you know, trying to operate at that, at that sort of practical uh, spot of what are, you know, policy solutions or practicable solutions. Um, and we wanted to have those types of thinkers, but also to have folks who were very much academics so they who who were who were outright engaged in you know theoretical frameworks and understanding concepts or changing concepts around this and teaching them um and activists um so people who are uh like policy think tank folks you know uh, concerned with uh changing uh, uh the, you know the political state of play but much more from a ground uh, a ground up engaging in in power struggles or, or or struggles with 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 the political space um so we had these three very different types of folks that we were bringing together into these uh thematic groups yeah so certainly there was a lot of bringing people together who don't normally um or wouldn't usually or otherwise speak with one another so both across uh area and content of what it is they're working on and in terms of ways of working and ways of thinking. So there was a lot of, yeah, crossing boundaries um, happening there. Um, and yeah, I think that what um, was quite key in the genesis of the of the project and continued to be throughout is, the, you know, this idea that the Middle East is... Um, exceptionalized, right? So it, in terms of some of the themes you were talking about earlier, seeing them as global crises, those are things that have been long associated with the Middle East, right? Like particularly authoritarian and particularly misogynistic, particularly wrought by violence. Um, and that's something that the, yeah, perhaps you want to say a little bit about the project, how the project approached that. I think we, I think we both have a lot to say about exceptionalism. That's been, uh, I mean, you know, tearing down exceptionalism has been a central part of my, uh, like intellectual project and intellectual life. Um, you know, for, for as long as I've been thinking about power and, and politics, uh, as, uh, I mean, so as an American, uh, one is Im imbued from, from the earliest consciousness with, with the idea of American exceptionalism, right? Whether it's manifest destiny or, or the, you know, the special democracy that the, 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 or the special liberalism that the United States believes it, it's itself to have the, the United States is a sort of light, you know, a city on a hill, a light unto nations. Um, these are, this is like very much in the fabric, even, uh, one I've come to realize among people who are critics of, uh, American power. Americans who are critics of, of American power of the American government still tend to to reflect this idea that America is special and different, and maybe operates under different laws or has a different claim of of um, uh, you know to moral goodness. Uh, you know, so even its mistakes are somehow different than the mistakes of other uh, great powers. Um, now, 
when we talk about the exceptionalism of the Middle East, uh, I, I tend to think about the exceptionalism that outsiders falsely imbue it with. But we can also talk about whether the Middle East carries its own or, or countries and, and, and communities within the Middle East maybe carry some of their own versions of the exceptionalism that, that I was just talking about with America. But from the outside, so so the Middle East as a region was invented not by people in the Middle East, right? It was invented by cartographers and imperialists who had things to do, usually military projects, later economic projects, uh, in this region that they were occupying and colonizing. Um, so that's just a sort of historical fact. And it's led to this very interesting set of um, set of ideas that has really major real world consequences, right? So first is thinking about the Middle East as a unified region at all. Um, and, and the more you look into this, the more you realize, you know, the State Department and the US military have different definitions of the Middle East. Britain, the UK Foreign Office with its Near East, which is what it calls the Middle East, has a slightly different definition and so on. So depending on who you're talking about, the Middle East is a different region. And it was more or less defined by military adventures by Western powers in this region, uh, uh, ultimately uh, military um, actions that were there to secure the, the passage of trade uh, through the Suez Canal, and then later the, um, the control of energy resources when oil was discovered. So that's what the Middle East is. Now, once you think about it that way, it's not surprising that there's a ton of mostly racist uh, essentialism around what, you know, what is the Middle East? The Middle East is this violent place, the thinking goes, that is, you know, because of Islam, because of backwardness, because of tribalism. So the the emphasis shifts uh, at times and, and depending on the speaker, but because of these sort of uh, uh, inchoate uh, uh, forces that have to do with just who these people are, uh, the region is poorly governed or ungovernable. It is hostile to democracy. It is hostile to women. Uh, nowadays, we'd say it's hostile to, to queer people, LGBTQ uh, plus communities, um, because of something about who these people are uh, in the Middle East. And it is therefore consigned to these endless cycle of low-grade wars. Um, now, this kind of rhetoric, by the way, you can hear in the West, if you if you look historically, you can hear it about many different regions at different times, right? I mean, you heard things like this said about the Balkans in the 90s. You hear things said uh, about this, uh, like this about Africa, um, on the democracy, like, you know, doomed to not be democratic. That used to be a widely used trope about Asia in the United States. They used to talk about how, how you know, Asia was, Asians were somehow supposedly culturally not suited to democracy. And then, you know, that suddenly fell apart when, uh, you know, lots of Asian countries became democratic. And, and of course, you know, these are racist tropes um, and they have a huge amount of, of power uh, in, in determining, um, in determining uh, policy. Right. And then by bringing people together across these two regions, it necessarily sort of invokes a, a different paradigm, um, which we'll discuss in, I think, more detail. Okay, we'll be right back. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, director of Century International. We're the heirs to more than 100 years of international policy research at the Century Foundation. Today, we focus on the human consequences of policy crises in the Middle East and North Africa, and we try to address our findings to a wide international audience. We're especially concerned with decision makers, whether in MENA region capitals 
or in the West and Washington, whose decisions can greatly change the trajectory of policies in the Middle East. Please visit us at tcf.org to read our reports and listen to our podcasts. Welcome back to Order from Ashes, the Century International Podcast. I'm Naira Antun, and I'm speaking with the Nasi Kambanis about our project, Transnational Trends in Citizenship. Welcome back, the Nasi. It's so great to be talking to you about this. Yeah, this is fun. So perhaps now we can talk, um, we've spoken in quite sort of big picture way. Maybe we can go into some of the, some of the learnings from across our um we called them working groups when we were doing the project, but um, should we do that, Finasi? Yeah, let, let's. I mean, there's, there's, let's. there's so. I mean, by the way, listeners, uh, me and Naya, as we record this podcast, are in the middle of editing like tens and tens of thousands of words that came out of these working groups. I think seventeen or or eighteen. Uh, written, long written pieces of content. So we're very, very immersed right now in all the different discussions that took place over uh, almost a year and a half uh, that we've been been working on this on this set of questions. Yeah, exactly. And we'll have, so this is the introductory um, podcast episode of, we're going to have others coming out of these working groups where we will discuss these learnings in, um, in a bit more detail. So for now, um, just in a in a general sense, um, perhaps we'll start with the uh, militias group. I almost want to say militias in uh, in uh, scare quotes because I know there was a lot of discussion around terminology actually in in that group. Um, yeah, sure. So that that was a that was a really uh, a neat um, exercise because we what we did was we got together. Uh, a group of folks who we've been working with for a long time at Century International on various conflicts in, in the Middle East. So we had folks who, who focused on uh, militias and armed groups in Yemen, in Iraq, and in Syria, uh, and and to a lesser extent Lebanon. So you know, like these these uh, emblematic. Uh, hybrid hybrid battlegrounds where there are you know state non-state actors, quasi-state actors, states within a state, and so on. Um, and then we 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 brought them together with with folks who've been studying the white supremacist groups um, in in the in the West, uh, mostly in in the United States. So neo Nazis, white supremacists, uh, uh, three percenters, these sorts of uh, hate groups that came to sudden prominence after January 6th, but which have been a part of American life for a long time. Um, and, um, and what we were trying to do is say like, Hey, uh, what, what, if anything, do armed groups have in common across these different contexts? And, um, can we think about these armed groups, these militias as being on a spectrum without assuming or, 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 or reductively saying that, you know, the United States and Yemen are somehow exactly the same or very similar just to say, Hey, armed groups that, that challenge the state and operate outside the control of the state must have something in common. What is it? What is in common? Uh, how do they interact with and affect and learn from each other? How are they on a continuum? And it was really uh, surprising to me how resistant these incredibly smart colleagues of mine were to making those comparisons at first. So there was a lot of sort of hesitation. So you would ask, you know, what can we, what can we learn by thinking about, you know, the Houthis in Yemen and these 
January 6th groups. And the first response was to say, like, we can't even talk about those as the same kind of group. Um, and so there was a kind of exceptionalism that went both ways, right? So um, folks who were who were steeped in in the MENA context would say like, well, you know, like we're not we're not saying we're not being essentialists and saying these places are doomed to conflict, but really the the conditions are so unique in country X that to compare them to another place would be would be silly. Uh, but then these same people would very comfortably compare, let's say, Yemen to Lebanon or Iraq to Yemen. But when you ask them to uh, to, to to compare Iraq to the United States or the West to the Middle East, um, they initially didn't want to do it, um, but over time they did, and and uh, and were able to learn quite quite a bit, uh, both about how armed groups operate and also how we could do a better job studying and thinking about armed groups by using the techniques that let's say we've developed studying ISIS uh, to also study groups like the neo Nazis in the United States. Yeah, I mean this reluctance that you. Um that you talk about the Nazi, perhaps we can use that to talk about something that was, um, I think, you know, a, a general sort of theme uh, across our conversations. And I think one is around, um, uh, well, one thing that I think this example speaks to is how these sort of area-based silos can really, you know, shape our thinking and what we consider to be problems to, to look at and what we just end up not, not looking at at all. Um, and the other thing is I think there was, a, um, across the working group, sometimes a reluctance to engage in, in, um, in speaking across context, shall we say, because of a fear um, of losing granularity. And, and a fear of, you know, people have spent years developing often expertise in whatever the field is and whether it's in an academic form or, or otherwise, um, and, and have too often seen the, the dangers of policy that misunderstands local context, you know. So there was often that, that reluctance. But I think that what we were, what the groups ended up doing and what we were looking for was not really about um, losing granularity and making surface level comparisons, right? It wasn't that type of comparative exercise. We weren't looking to like split things into typologies or, or, or that type of thing. Yeah. I mean, very, very ecumenically asking like, what can we learn by thinking about this problem in these two different contexts? Um, and the answer could be nothing, right? we learn nothing, or maybe we learn something very tactical, like, uh, we should be careful about how much store we put in what we learn from social media, right? So you can, you know, you can learn some kind of technical thing, or you might, as we did in the militias group, learn that some of the techniques used to harness, let's say, uh, uh, male fears about uh, uh, fe females gaining social power, uh, we see militias in vastly different contexts harness that to uh, cultivate uh, uh, loyalty from armed group members and 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 weaponize that uh, to use uh, as violence and policing you know in policing communities that they're trying to take power over um, so you can find ver these very uh, technical insights these very literal uh, in insights uh, uh, across con context yeah and in the I mean in the Militias group, you spoke about how there was perhaps an exceptionalism that went uh, that went both ways. I mean, I, I think though perhaps across the working groups. I mean, a lot of the participants in our working groups are quite, you know, critically minded people and so on. And I think that for most people who work on the Middle East in some sort of critical capacity, they're quite used to seeing the Middle East in its global context. It's somehow hard not to. So they're used to, you know, if they want to see what the 
factors are, what the context of an issue is, they might consider that context in a, in a global sense. Whereas somebody working on something in Europe or the US, it might not occur to them to consider that the context actually has global factors. And and uh, and maybe this th- that's a useful pivot to move to the next group uh, that that we spent uh, that that we worked on, which was the gender and sexuality working group. Um, and so, what you just said was actually one of the first sort of findings and interesting insights that came out of this group, which is um, one of the members pointed out that you know if someone if someone is studying phenomena. Any, any phenomena in the United States, the title of their book would be, you know, cloth merchants. But if they were studying cloth merchants in Saudi Arabia, you know, it would be, it would be, you know, the cloth merchants of the Gulf. Um, you know, so the, so there's this unnoticed almost, uh, uh, centrality of, of, of the West in the study of literally everything. Um, so if you're studying it somewhere else, it's, you know, democracy, in the subcontinent, democracy in the Arab world. Whereas if you're looking at democracy or democratic erosion in the U.S., it would just be democracy and its erosion. Um, and, um, you know, and, and the other thing that you, that you mentioned uh, a minute ago, which, which immediately got me thinking about the gender uh, group as well, is the, uh, the, the sort of justified but sometimes frustrating uh, reluctance of, of people to go out of their comfort zone with what they know really well. And, um, and gender was one of the really interesting, uh, 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 ways in which that manifested in the malicious group, right? In the malicious group, we, we, you know, just because we had a gender group didn't mean we couldn't talk about gender in other, in other groups. And in, when, you know, when you're talking about, uh, uh, militias, uh, in our time, gender comes up all, you know, in, in tons of ways. And so, yeah, I mean, one of them was the, the, the ISIS, the quote unquote ISIS brides phenomena, right? Where women went to join ISIS, um, and they were an entirely different vocabulary was applied to them as if they weren't volunteers for a violent jihadi group. So the men who did it were, you know, jihadis, but the women were ISIS brides, um, as if, because they were female, they had no agency, you know, and, 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 and then of course, when it came time to strip them of citizenship, uh, you know, they went back to being national security threats. Um, and so, so, and that was something that, that also in a well-meaning way, uh, a lot of our group members, like didn't want, they didn't want to stray outside of their disciplinary framework. Right. So if they were people who thought about hard security or who thought about, you know, the recruitment of fighters, they didn't want to, you know, go outside, outside of that, um, yeah. Out of that yeah. boundary. Well, also stay stay tuned. We do have a podcast episode on militias and gender. So stay tuned for, for that. And I think that, it, as you say, Thanasi, it did come up quite a lot, you know, whether we're talking disciplinary boundary or area that someone is used to, but it also comes up with gender quite a lot in, in general, right? In all fields. Like, oh no, maybe ask the women. Uh, you get a gender question. It's like, oh, ask the women. And I think that one of the, things that the participants in the gender working group insisted on, and indeed, like you say, um, not not just because there's a group looking at gender, it means that we're not considering gender across the board. One of the things that they really insisted on is that gender, and as feminists long have, is not really just about women, and that sexuality is not about LGBTQ uh, plus people, but that sexuality, it was about bringing, you know, a queer or LGBTQ plus and straight sexualities into the same analytical frame and similarly around gender. And that was something that that group really um, insisted on. Um, and it really deepens our understanding across context as well. Um, 
that that played out in the in the gender group just what one other sort of central finding of them is of that group is how the the group looked at the um the ways in which uh moral panics which are sort of you know politically orchestrated hysterias against against some vulnerable group uh are often like in the culture wars in the US or like in some of these uh, uh, sex panics that, that you'll go into in later editions of this podcast in in, in the Middle East and in Europe uh, are used as sort of test runs for authoritarian or anti-democratic processes that once uh, once trotted out against some vulnerable group are then uh, wielded against the population at large. And it was fascinating to me to realize how almost the exact same techniques are used in completely different contexts. I mean, in authoritarian states and democracies by, you know, traditionalist modernists, that they end up following an almost identical playbook in harnessing these moral panics for political power. And that was one of the really interesting transnational insights that, that came out of this project. Yeah, we end up do, uh, discussing moral panics a lot, which which do do a bunch of things, including, um, as you say, being a test run, enabling the kind of uh, development of, of, of coalitions. Um, and we've seen across the globe this idea that gender ideology is some threat to society. So the way in which we um, gender and sexuality becomes a kind of uh, lightning rod. Our third group uh, was looked at police accountability, um, and we had talked about this a little bit at the beginning of our conversation today, Naira, the, the, the global moment where uh, this issue was peaking once again, uh, really cast a light on how tough and persistent this problem has been to solve. It's, uh, it's incredibly apparent when you start looking transnationally that uh, police accountability um, and also torture by by state security forces has been almost impossible to resolve in almost every context. So whether we're looking at uh, wealthy, advanced, developed democracies with really well-established rule of law, institutional checks and balances, and all the sorts of of, of structural uh, uh, benefits enjoyed by countries in, in, in Europe and uh, North America, uh, or whether you're looking at um, uh, uh, secular or religious dictatorships and monarchies uh, around the Middle East and North Africa, the, the problem of police accountability, uh, police violence, um, and public back- backlash against it persists year after year, decade after decade. And, and to me, that shows, uh, that in this transnational analysis, shows just how difficult this is to address and how hard it is to find solutions. Um, and uh, a lot of the the comparisons and and transnational um, analysis showed one that some of these forces um, that cause the problem are really actually work reinforcing each other. So you know, global industries of police training and interaction actually help deepen uh, some of these problems. And um, and the and the other thing we see is that um, is that there really is a uh, a, a sort of international response uh, against this that that doesn't have um, to date a really a real natural home. So you know there's there's some reform movements that look at like things like community policing. The members of the group did a really good job of 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 showing ways in which it can often end up perpetuating the problems it tries to solve. Uh, but there isn't a sort of obvious or natural solution to this problem. And that's what I think the, uh, the group identified the sort of ongoing struggle to find, uh, ways, uh, ways to propose alternatives to a problematic status quo. 
Absolutely. And in terms of returning to what's a sort of um, ongoing thread in this project and, and what we've been talking about today, Thanasi, of how do we know what we know or how do we try and understand these, these, this phenomena, um, thinking about police, so often conversations and even contestation of police practices might happen within sort of national boundaries. But you've already alluded to, you know, actual existing international links between uh, policing uh, practices uh, globally. And then police reform, the attempt to sort of address those, is also a global uh, industry. So that's something that the um, that the group spoke about quite a bit. And then to take community policing it, as a model, it is actually used across contexts. So we're almost being invited to, to, to do a bit of, com, you know, open our, our sites to be a little bit more comparative. And and this is this is a thing that like like protest, which we're gonna where we ended with, um, is uh, you know there's some really glaring and 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 and, and obvious and fascinating active uh, sort of vectors of 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 action from one region to another. So I'm I'm thinking like you know when I was in Baghdad in 2003. Um, I went to the the Baghdad Police Academy, and who was who was trotting around with a pistol in his pocket to train the police, the you know, the to retrain the Iraqi police? But Bernie Carrick, the soon to be disgraced former police commissioner of New York City, um, who was you know later implicated in all sorts of like really just run of the mill like low level corruption. Um, but 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 this guy. <laughs> A, a, a literal bad cop from the U.S. was being sent to Baghdad to a place where, um, where by the way, the worst the worst brutality and excesses of the regime hadn't been done by the police, but had been done by the secret police, which was an entirely different institution. But you know, anyway, and then we had over the next. 15 years, all these American uh, uh, service members who went and fought in Iraq and then came back and were given preferential recruitment into the ranks of police forces. So, you know, for, for good and ill, we had this nexus of war on terror, you know, training Iraqis, Americans picking up practices in these war zones and then coming back and having to adapt them or, or implement them in community police forces. Um, it's, it's it very literally, uh, illustrates this globalized, you know, so it's not always this obvious, right? Sometimes there aren't these obvious global connections. In this space, um, like in protests, there are real obvious uh, intersections. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, let's turn to protest, which, as you say, um, in the two regions that we that we took into the remit of this project, police uh, brutality and border practices have been a lightning rod uh, for protest. And we've seen sort of mass mobilizations of different kinds across the, the two um, areas. Yeah, I mean that protest is is very near and dear to my heart. I spent um I spent many years in Egypt and I wrote a book about the the uprising, the 2011 uprising that ultimately for now did not succeed at uh at changing uh a really terrible dictatorial system. Um and uh throughout this decade I've been I've been struck by uh by two sort of countervailing things. On the one hand, um protest uh, uh, movements have really engaged in a lot of intentional learning, right? That they, 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 they so whether we're, we're talking about Iraq or, or Occupy Wall Street or BLM, uh, or you name it, uh, the umbrella protesters in Hong Kong, not part of our project, but, you know, also a very 
prominent movement. These movements really do look at what happens in other places. Uh, so they look at what you know how how other protest movements have contested power. They look at how they've organized, how they've set up their their, their leadership, how they've tried to to channel popular demands, and so on. Um, so there's this really this this really evident effort to to draw on the on the universal or on the experience of others and then localize it into into new contexts and on the other hand there seems to be this very common thread of for the most part these movements no matter how huge they get or how persistent or how brave uh they have tended not to succeed um at changing policy or politics and this goes across really different, like th this is true in the United States. It's true in Iraq. It's true in Algeria. It's true in Sudan, uh, that, that, um, uh, these movements often get defeated even when they really build on, uh, what they've learned from other contexts. And even when they do succeed, um, at, at, uh, you know, solving problems that previous movements were, were, were confounded by, um, and getting huge amounts of, uh, of support. Yeah, we did end up t talking quite a bit about learning across um, across protests and the challenges and the shared challenges, indeed, um, of turning how you turn protests and moments of mass mobilization, um, which is kind of the sparkly side of a movement, into an actually existing uh, movement. And some of those challenges are, are shared across across contexts. So um, really, I, I think at this point, I just have to say, stay tuned for more. We're going to go into more depth into a lot of these things, um, both in the coming podcast, of which there'll be episodes from across those uh, four working groups, those four themes we mentioned. And uh, feel free to read any of the thousands of words that uh, Thanasi mentioned earlier. <laughs> yeah, this is, I mean, this is a... a experiment for Century International where we're uh, doing something we haven't done before by bringing uh, essentially like North Americanists and Europeanists into conversation with our usual uh, type of lineup of, of, of people who are, are focused in the Middle East. Um, and it's also a, uh, a new experiment uh, for Order from Ashes as a podcast where uh, Naira is going to be hosting a uh, a sort of self-contained season. Uh, this, this conversation today was the first episode and she's going to lead, uh, she's going to lead you through the four subjects of our project, militias, uh, gender, sexuality, police accountability, and protest. So by the end of, of this season, uh, you'll have had a, a, a similar journey as we had through the questions and thoughts and insights that come from this kind of, uh, 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 like crazy and and exciting and 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 creative experiment with with thinking and rethinking about the connections between the Middle East uh, and and Western Europe and North America. Absolutely exciting stuff. Uh, looking forward to it. Um, thanks for uh, talking with me today, Thanasi. Actually, I'm kind of explaining to our listeners what's what's coming up and about the kind of framework of this project, which indeed is um, quite different from from what the institution has done before. And we didn't say it's a kind of iteration. It's the newest iteration of previous projects that have been Middle East focused. Anyhow, exciting stuff. Looking forward to, looking forward to it. Uh, you've been listening to Order from Ashes, the Century International podcast. I'm Nara Antoon, and I've been speaking with Danasi Kambanis as part of our Transnational Trends in Citizenship project. The Order from Ashes podcast has been brought to you by Century International. 
Our work builds on more than 100 years of commitment to international peace, security, and governance at the Century Foundation. We are independent, critical, and progressive. For more information about Century International's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We depend on audience feedback to reach new listeners. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.